0: In this episode, we get into the guts of the deep social and political conflict tearing Israel apart, with Avi Issacharoff, no less, the co-creator of the hit international TV series, Fauda. If you haven't seen it yet, you must. Four seasons are now out, and it is a hard, uncompromising look at the complexities of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the many faces of terrorism. Fauda is an Arabic word, which means chaos in English. So who better to turn to to help us understand the current chaos in Israel than master storyteller Avi Issacharoff? This is the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond, the podcast that brings you the straight-up, unfiltered story. What's really going down in Israel? Politics, economics, religion and state, lots of conflict. I'm your host, Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. We're on the street with the folks who live here and have skin in the game. Yalla, let's dive in. Avi Issacharoff is a very busy guy, working ceaselessly, it seems, on one big TV project after another. So to have an hour to chat with him in Tel Aviv recently was a real treat. I met Avi almost 10 years ago, in the early days of his transition from full-time journalist to creator of television series. At the time, I was serving as the Canadian Ambassador to Israel, a position I held until June 2016. Immediately upon my arrival in Israel, in January 2014, he became my go-to journalist for insights and analysis regarding security issues. It's not that there aren't other excellent journalists covering the beat, and there were in those days too, but there was a different dimension to Avi's reporting. Many journalists covering the tough guy beats exude machismo, often exaggeratedly so. Not Avi. He was a man with feelings, who saw nuance and tragedy while providing hard-edged reporting on the unceasing and brutal conflict in the Middle East. He was and is a great storyteller. And for me, he stood out from day one. When we first met, Fauda had just debuted, and it was an unexpected success, in Israel and internationally. Many credit Avi and his creative partner, actor Lior Raz, with having been the first Israelis to find big and ongoing, as it turns out, success outside of Israel in the entertainment industry. They broke into the big time. They were also fortunate that when they came to international attention, streaming services were really taking off and looking for content. Their timing was brilliant. I remember in one of our early conversations, Avi telling me about how he and Lior had shopped around the concept for Fauda in Israel for a while, before somebody nibbled. But then again, show me a successful artist who hasn't had their share of rejection letters. Well, those days are long past for Avi. We met earlier this week in his modest office in Tel Aviv, close to the quiet neighborhood where he lives on the outer edges of the city one of the best-kept secrets of Tel Aviv. An older neighborhood with a very mixed population and demographic, full of parks, old-style family stores that haven't changed the way they do business in 50 years, next to newer shishi restaurants and fancy food shops. He once told me he prefers that area to many parts of Tel Aviv precisely because it is so eclectic and real, uncontrived, unpretentious, just is what it is. Regular people going about their lives. And it also strikes me that it is an apt metaphor for Avi as well. A man who has tasted and enjoyed quite extraordinary success and recognition in a field that is so difficult to crack, never mind staying relevant and hot. The Avi I met this week is the same guy I ran into at an event nine years ago. He's friendly, warm, down-to-earth, easy to talk to, lovely with his staff, just a guy going about his life, uncontrived and unpretentious. He was, as always, generous with his time and insights. As are all Israelis, Avi is deeply engaged in this moment of extreme upheaval. And, as always, he offers such interesting insight and thought. I was actually surprised by some of his comments, which expressed ideas I just hadn't heard yet. You'll hear them soon. Avi's gift is to ferret out that little nugget embedded within a moment in time or deep inside a character and interpret it so that it comes to life for those of us who are not such astute observers. And he will use that insight to explain things in a way that is truly unique. I expect that you will enjoy this conversation with Avi Isakharov as much as I did. Sunday, April 9th, sitting here with Avi Isakharov. So nice to see you. Thank you. And thank you for making time to talk to us about Fauda and all the exciting things going on in Israel these days.
1: So how should I, like, should I say Madam Ambassador or or (laughs) Vivian or what exactly? Uh, Vivian works. Okay. Yeah.
0: Cool. Viv works too. Okay. But if you want to call me Excellency, I'm good with that.
1: Um, Way, way better with Her Excellency.
0: Okay. So now that we've sorted that out, let's take on the rest of like the really, the really tough stuff. First of all, I wanted to just start with Fauda. Season four was just dropped, what, two months ago, month ago? Yeah. Yeah, recently. I've yeah. watched it, everyone's binged it, myself included. And it was wildly successful, just like the first three seasons, correct? Better. Really? Yeah. How so?
1: I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but the numbers were way, way higher.
0: Like, can you give me an order of magnitude? No. I'll I'm not stay allowed. Stay secret. Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: Okay. but the are happy. the The good news is that you know, not like many other shows. Mm. Actually, I would say that all of the shows are usually going down in numbers from a season to season. Our show went up.
0: I can offer some thoughts on that. Okay, please. Your show got smarter and bigger picture over the course of the seasons. So one of the things, for example, that I really, really loved about season four is you, you kind of, you zoomed out. You gave us a larger view of the terrorism problem and issue and challenge, starting out, you know, with the, I think the first episode was in Brussels, right? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you took it out of this, from this little kind of micro issue into a much larger international issue. Right off, I thought that was really, really powerful.
1: That's a great explanation.
0: That's mine.
1: Yeah. No, it's great. Actually, no one knows. I mean, no one can put a finger and says this is the secret recipe for, yeah. you know, going up the numbers. But again.
0: The Fauda secret sauce.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to say thank you and do not ask. Of
0: Don't know How did it happen? Yeah. So I have to tell you, your, your English PR on the show is really good on Twitter. They kind of come out in bursts and they did a great blast right before the launch. And one of the questions they asked was, Who's your favorite character? Who do you want to see more of in season four? Believe it or not, my favorite character is Gabi the Captain.
1: Of course, like many others.
0: Really? Yeah. And I thought I was special.
1: No. No. (laughs) Captain Ayub, Gabi, Itzi Cohen, his real name. He's amazing. He's an amazing actor, first of all. Then. The character is really, really unique and sophisticated and smart. And and third, is very, very popular in the Arab world. He I is? See. Yes, he is.
0: Okay. He's Israeli?
1: He's Israeli. Speaks he
0: Arabic, obviously, and Hebrew. He doesn't
1: speak a word in Arabic. No. Nothing. Nada. Walashi. Wow. But he learned the Arabic through learning the, the dialogues. And he's just brilliant. And people love him on the Palestinian side, and people love him on everywhere, really.
0: Incredible. So he learned Arabic acting in your series, basically. Yes, yes. Well yes. enough to yeah fool me. On Sunday afternoon, when we met, it was a super hot and muggy day in Tel Aviv, unseasonably so. And when we began the interview, I think neither one of us realized that the AC was off. Avi motioned to me and mouthed "AC." which I thought was a brilliant idea. So we had to pause and then carry on. Here goes. And that white noise in the background, that's the AC. So we were talking about, about Gabi, the captain, who I agree is also a very sophisticated and compelling character. Like As soon as you think you kind of understand him, you, you wove so much into that role, right? Amazing. Thank you. You're welcome, and to all the all the rest of the team that deserves credit. But uh, any anyway, I hope you guys revive him for season five, and don't. Still waiting
1: to hear from the network. From yes.
0: Okay, well tell them to call me. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll straighten <laughs> it out pretty quickly. But assuming that you get the green light and you go ahead and you do a season five, like don't put him in in a wheelchair and you know in an institution, please. For me, okay, okay. we need him congratulations on all the Fauta's success and whatever else you're working on. Any projects you want to tell me about?
1: We have a new project coming on May 19th in the U.S. for Showtime. It's called Ghosts of Beirut. It's about the CIA and the Mossad chase after Ahmad Mounia, the head of the military wing of Hezbollah, a 26 years of a manhunt after the... If you ask me, the most dangerous terrorist that operated on the face of this planet. More dangerous than Osama bin Laden, more dangerous than the jackal. He was an inventor. He was Bill Gates of terrorism. He was the Michael Jordan of terrorism. And he brought to this area, to this region, a mechanism, a technique that wasn't that popular at all. Well, it wasn't existing in the Middle East till then. And it's the suicide attacks.
0: Oh, he so, was the innovator?
1: Here, okay. in the Middle East. Okay. Meaning, yes, suicide attacks were used in Sri Lanka once. Uh, maybe you can call the, the uh, kamikaze pilots a kind of a... But like that, with explosive belts, with Sunni or Shiite ideology, he was the right. one who brought it in.
0: Interesting. So... You have a series based on his his innovation in terms of terrorism technique. He was very, very effective. And I know he was, of course, a master of disguise and always on the run. But eventually, someone found him and ended his life.
1: Yep, yep. CIA Mossad joint operation. It's not going to be a spoiler because the end is known. Right. Uh, It was the first joint assassination operation of both agencies.
0: It's the moment to moment. It's
1: also different because it's... well, it's a dra- drama with a documentary element. Okay, So it's, drama. it's really not Fauda.
0: Got it. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to look forward to it. Yeah. And that's coming out May 19th?
1: May 19th on Showtime. Showtime.
0: Yep. Okay, and when's it coming out in Israel? I don't know yet. For those who don't live in Israel, when a great show like Fauda debuts abroad, there is often a delay for those of us in Israel who want to see it. We just can't see it. Weird? Tell me about it. Frustrating beyond belief. But this is the startup nation, and there are lots of workarounds. After catching up on his latest career news, Avi and I turned to the very fraught situation in Israel, which is surreal and tearing the nation and people asunder. I want to really focus most of our time today on the situation in Israel. And just for the sake of listeners, many of whom may just know you as one of the creators of Fauda, you were born in Israel, correct? Yep. You What fifth, sixth generation? 10th.
1: My grand-grand-grandparent came to Israel on
0: 1873. Okay. So on both sides?
1: No, on my father's side.
0: Okay. And my
1: mother's side came from Kurdistan on 1900.
0: Okay. So long time yeah. Residents of the area, can we say? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. And did you speak Arabic at home growing up?
1: A bit. I mean, okay. my mom spoke Arabic, my grandmom spoke Arabic, and my mom was born here. My grandmom was born in Kurdistan on the border between Turkey and Syria, on the Syrian side, in a, in a small place called Kamishli. But later on, got into the news with ISIS on, and all mm. that, with the Kurdish fighters fighting ISIS and Kurdish women. Fighting ISIS and if you would known my my grandmom you would understand how come that the Kurdish won ISIS, the Kurdish women won ISIS. They're tough. Yeah, they were tough. You remind, they were they, they tough. remind me a
0: lot of Israelis in yeah, many ways. Yeah,
1: yeah. So we came from, you know, Mizrahim, Mishpachot family from oriental or eastern um uh,
0: Roots. middle eastern yeah middle eastern yeah, i mean everyone interprets these terms differently which is kind of fun but i'm going to try to keep it simple and to me Mizrahi is middle eastern jew or jew yeah. of middle eastern origin
1: yeah so yeah we were we are Mizrahi, and, and if, it,
0: if i'm not mistaken i think even the united nations would agree that you are a legitimate resident of this of this area
1: not the united nation as much as even hamas like, I remember myself talking to Sheikh Ahmad Yassin when I was wow. still a young journalist in the field talking to the founder of Hamas. And I explained to him that my family became, came to Israel before 1917. And he said, so you will be allowed to stay when we will he- get rid of all the Jews here. So, right. Thank
0: God. Honorary Jew, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he allowed did, me to stay. When did, when did his family migrate to the area? Yeah, good question. Yeah. Oh, uh, unfortunately, we can't ask. Him yeah, now. yeah, not anymore. Those who are wondering, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin was a fiery teacher and founder of Hamas, who was born sometime in the late 20s or 30s and assassinated by Israel in a targeted killing in the Gaza Strip on March 4, 2006. So you're a Mizrahi Jew. You served, I know, in the Duvdevan unit, which again, for our listeners who aren't aware, It's a super elite, don't be modest, combat unit in the army. I believe it was formed in 1988, thereabouts, in order to deal with what the army saw as being the kind of increasing challenges, problems, threats originating in very densely populated urban areas like the refi- so-called refugee camps in Jenin and in other parts of the West Bank.
1: So the logic behind this was pretty simple. It was 1986, Barack, back then Central Command yeah. commander or chief of staff, I think Central Command, decided to found this new unit. That's it. Its aim, its mission was to assimilate into the local population, and by that, getting to the bad guys more easily. Why? Because every time that... The army with, you know, uniform or armed vehicles or whatever stepped into a city. Immediately, the wanted terrorists heard the news because people sold them. Yeah. And they were running away and disappearing. So because of the numbers of the wanted terrorists got higher and higher every year, this is where the IDF decided to form this new elite unit and to allow these warriors or soldiers to get to the wanted terrorists without the wanted terrorists knowing who they were
0: so you were effectively living under deep cover
1: no 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 no. it wasn't like that it wasn't like living in a deep cover it was just going in and out like yeah you go you spend an hour you spend 30 minutes you spend a minute you grab them you take them out or sometimes you don't grab them sometimes you just get into a fight no no no, no, it's like like even for a 30 minutes mission, okay? You yeah, go, yeah. you need to stay in one area for a while to say a few words, to buy yeah, yeah. something, and then you get the info, you get the indication that a bad guy is coming. Yeah. You know how does it look like, you know its name, you know everything, and then you get it.
0: Okay. So it's basically watching an episode of Fauda. <laughs> kind right? of.
1: Okay. Only back then, we were younger. And we had more hair. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Okay. And, and we were taller and blue eyes. And no, I'm not. I'm kidding.
0: Okay. So, so how many years service did you do in Dubrovnik? Three and a bit. And when was that? 1991 till
1: 1995.
0: My goodness, the years fly, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. they do. Okay. So, I mean, and then I know you were a journalist for many years, and we met almost 10 years ago, believe it or not, when I was serving as ambassador, and you've since kind of moved away from writing which is how I first came to be aware of you into this fabulous world of television entertainment Yeah, and good for you. Recently though, you've kind of, you've stepped up more in the public eye in order to comment on this really quite crazy situation we find ourselves in in Israel. Yep. I've seen you writing more. I can even read your articles in Hebrew now.
1: Tweeting more.
0: You're tweeting more, and you made an appearance on a very important television show here called Uvda, which means fact in English, which is hosted by, in my view, possibly one of the best journalists in the world, Ilana Diane.
1: 60 Minutes of Israel.
0: The 60 Minutes of Israel, except the I've described it, that's what it is, except it's much better.
1: And I spoke in a few of the big demonstrations. Oh, um, I missed you. Where yeah. did you speak? In Tel Aviv. At Kaplan. Yeah. The big one, yeah, like two months ago, maybe okay. Back then, they were around let, let's say 130,000 people, just like yesterday. And then I spoke in Jerusalem in a right wing demonstration against the reform, the so called reform. So it was way, way smaller, it's only 300 people, uh, but all of them were settlers or right wingers that were saying, We don't need that, we should stop it because it leads us. To a very bad place.
0: So they were agreeing with you, in effect.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. If you enjoy our work, please rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our Substack page, which is stateoftelaviv.com. That stateoftelaviv all one word.com. Whatever works. Your thumbs up makes a huge difference, for real. Thank you so much for your support. Now, back to the podcast. It's been a really bad week. I think that's a fair summary. Yeah. Do you agree?
1: I agree. So,
0: I mean, I'd like to just focus on the here and now, what's gone on in the last week, and how you would explain as succinctly as you can what a difficult and explosive juncture Israel is at, at the moment.
1: So about the judicial reform or a a coup, whatever you want to call it. So there's a halt, there's a freeze and both sides are negotiating. I mean one side is of course the government, the other side is the opposition parties though they are not really behind the demonstrations.
0: Let me cut to the chase on that, because I've written a lot about their judicial, so-called judicial reforms, and I've done a few podcasts on it. And just to make it very clear to the listeners, you are of the view that these judicial reforms will, in effect, um, harm or destroy liberal democracy in Israel. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay, so... Let's skip over the whole discussion about the judicial reforms. I happen to be of a view, and as a former lawyer, these really, they're, it's just a charade to even call them judicial reform. I think that it is much more of a velvet glove coup. I think it is getting at the underlying institutions and checks and balances in a democracy. We don't have nearly enough, as it is in Israel, and the few that we have, this government is intent on destroying. And they all say that. And they have said that. The judicial reform is a huge problem for the government. They say they're pausing. I don't accept that they're pausing in good faith.
1: Yeah, I think that this is more or less begins and ends with the judicial coup. Basically, because this country had become so fragmented because of the rift inside Israel society, I think that our enemies, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah, Iran, Syria, they're all smelling the blood. And they see that we're becoming weaker and weaker and they understand that this Prime Minister Netanyahu doesn't have the same support that he used to have. And this is why I think that they allow themselves to become more violent and more aggressive. The fact that we had seen 34 rockets being shot from southern Lebanon towards Israel, it's Uh, something that didn't take place here for the last 17 years Mm -hmm. and that's a long time and it says something What does it say? That Hezbollah is allowing itself uh, or maybe is allowing Hamas uh, to take uh, some uh, bet or to take a risk and to go and challenge Israel because they know that Netanyahu doesn't have the courage or the will now to go on a war. And I'm sure that it wouldn't have happened 10 years ago during another term of Netanyahu or especially even during Lapid and Bennett. They didn't do it. There's a reason why they do it now. And again, they, they feel that Netanyahu cannot allow himself to go on a war now doesn't have the support, the popular support of the Israeli people to go in a war. And again, you know, Netanyahu is cooking this thing for himself, and we are the ones that that are eating it.
0: So they shot 34, 36 rockets at northern Israel.
1: Hamas, yes.
0: There was really not much of a response with respect to Lebanon. So what?
1: And there was hardly any response towards Gaza. Ida. Exactly.
0: So they flex their muscles and then.
1: And then the IDF, by the order from the Israeli government, well, he kind of contained the, uh, the violence, kind of limited its own response. And we're in a situation in which Hamas and Hezbollah understand that what they were thinking about Israel is true, meaning that Israel doesn't want to go in a war mm-hmm. in whatever price it will be.
0: Is that a bad thing? Yes. Why?
1: Because I think that dealing with these kinds of enemies, they need to understand, they need to think that you're willing to go on a war of inhalation, meaning that you are so crazy, that you are so unpredictable, that you will be willing to send troops now to conquer Lebanon and to eliminate each and every Hezbollah member. And only then, maybe, and just maybe, Hassan Salah will be ready to reconsider some of his acts. Same so, with Hamas, by the way. And I'm saying here things, although you know, many people will accuse me of being, you know, those this lefty guy, this traitor, whatever. It's the opposite. Meaning, when we get to yeah. Hamas and Hezbollah, I'm more hawkish than most of the right wingers that I know.
0: So you're saying basically that. Israel should always be prepared to demonstrate that they're ready to go all out and they're ready to engage in all out war no matter what provocation Hamas engages in. So if Hamas shoots thirty four rockets across the border, Israel has to show them we're coming in and we're gonna crush you or be prepared with to with Hamas and
1: Hezbollah, yes. I think that in this case the address is Hamas. Right. According to the army intelligence. Right. And I think that the response to that, the reaction, should have been way, way more aggressive.
0: So the fact that it wasn't, what do you think the consequences will be?
1: We saw the consequences last night in Golan Heights when we saw more rockets being shot at Israel. And we will see more attacks coming from the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So it's just bringing more violence. So this
0: grinding attrition, this kind of, you know, sort of engaged, not engaged. Yeah. We're you going to see more violence. Yoshis. Al-Aqsa Mosque last week. We saw, I mean, you know, several hundred worshippers entering the mosque, taking with them various kinds of, you know, rocks and metal bars, I understand, and I'm sure there were a few Molotov cocktails here and there, and barricading themselves inside the mosque. I've never understood why worshippers take weapons into holy places. That seems to be something that the rest of the world is prepared to overlook. They did that, and the Israeli police then went in and raided the mosque, and we you and I both saw the quite uncomfortable videos that went viral around the world. What's your, what's your read on that? How do you analyze that whole situation, and why did the Israeli cops go in?
1: I think that the, the original scene was that the national security minister insisted that even during the months of Ramadan, Jews will continue to pray, or not to pray, sorry, but to visit the Temple Mountain Yard. While many other people told him, advised the government, don't let it happen. It's not that people will accuse you of doing something new. It happened in the past already, that's fine. But right. they insist. So now, when people are carrying weapons or from any kind into the, inside the mosque, and they know that the jews are about to get into the yard so they know that the muslim prayers are about to take them about to attack them mm-hmm. so they do not allow them to stay in the mosque and they need to go into the mosque pull them out and clean the mosque from weapons if the jewish uh, prayers would have would, wouldn't go to the temple mountain yard so let them you know stuck in the mosque if they want to get there and stuck there for the next 30 days of Ramadan, let them do that. But they insisted on going in and taking them out and then the beating came and all the the videos of, you know, the the horrifying beating of those Muslim prayers.
0: Let me offer another possibility. Why not just prevent them from taking weapons into the mosque in the first place?
1: So the weapons are very kind of primitive. Yes. Stones, you know, who can allow, like, at the, ga- at the gates, of course, you can uh, prevent them from taking weapons in, real weapons like guns. But stones or stuff like that, you cannot really, like, they can take it from the yard. The place is huge. The place is big. Yeah, yeah. This is A. B, you don't have any kind of the check except for some guards at the entrance of border police that arrest or do search only on people that look to them as suspicious. Okay. But we're talking about 250,000 people. So no one can have a search on 250,000 people.
0: State of Tel Aviv is supported by listeners and readers like you. We are an independent media organization, and in order for us to create this content, we need your support. Please visit our website at stateoftelaviv, all one word, dot com. That's com and consider becoming a paid subscriber. You will also find some fabulous print articles providing superb background analysis and opinion on what's going down. Each supporter makes a huge difference. Thanks for being here. And now, back to the episode. Among Avi's more frequent public engagements was a recent appearance on Ilana Dayan's TV show, mentioned earlier, called Uvda, the Israeli 60 Minutes. Avi was invited on to discuss various aspects of the security situation in Israel with Dayan, and for ten minutes or so, he appeared on air with another guest, David Betan, a long-time Likudnik who has traditionally been fiercely loyal to Benjamin Netanyahu. Not so much these days. There was a brief exchange between the two, Betan and Issacharoff, the former Duvdevan soldier who has served his country, Mizrahi by background and ethnicity, and someone who has been called an anarchist and traitor by so many Likudniks. They had a brief exchange about the impact of words like this being used in this way. I do want to ask you the pointed question. When you were sitting there and Vitan made those comments to you, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind?
1: I wasn't surprised. You know, again, and David Beaton wasn't one of the hawkish radicals that are pushing strongly the the coup, the judicial coup. This is not the case. I just wanted to hear his point of view about the things that are being said on us, that the ones yes. that are going to the demonstrations by Likud members, by his colleagues, by his friends. And he immediately said, I do not support those accusations and statements. You're not anarchists, you're not terrorists, not at all. And again, there are some people in the Likud that know that if they will say terrorists enough times, there will be some people that would probably vote for them in the next internal elections in the Likud Center. That was it. I mean, I didn't take it personally, but it's, it's so full of nothing. You know all this shit that is going on in the media, all this shit that you you hear from different people in the right side. That these guys are trying to pull their own coup. These guys are, do not really respect the results of the elections. And I said, like, listen, I personally, I didn't go to demonstrations against this government till this judicial coup. Correct. I didn't. Why? Because I respected the, the results. Yeah. Here you have an attempt to change the game after they won a completely different game. Let's say they won a basketball game with five players on the court from each team. Now they're saying, no, we need to go and play football or soccer. We will have 11 players and you will have five. So you understand that this is not a fair game.
0: Yeah. Now they basically, they didn't campaign on the judicial legislative overhaul. They did,
1: but in a very limited way. Very limited,
0: and little bits here and there. This is
1: not the case. At the end of the day, I think that the problem, the real problem is not even the judicial reform yet. So what's the real problem? It's the rift. And where do you see the
0: rifts? Because that's what I want to focus on. It's a rift
1: inside families, among friends, among everything, among my teammates, inside my family. My sister is a right-wing radical who supports the judicial reform. Kind of a center-left saying I'm against the coup. So just imagine yourself the arguments inside a gov- inside a, a family. The same thing with my teammates from the army, the, my best friends that you know we used to cover for each other. Blah, blah, and we're arguing about that. So of course it tears this country apart. Not will tear. It does tear. It already torn this pot, part, this country. Apart.
0: When your friends and family members express support for this judicial reform, on what basis is it? Because what I hear a lot is, the Ashkenaz have always... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like is, uh, right? for
1: so many years the, the Supreme Court didn't have a Mizrahi. Okay, okay, so now Bibi is going to change it? I mean, he, ha- he was so many years in power and he didn't move a finger. And that's the most ridiculous thing about this shit. One of the, one Sorry of the, to say that, but you know, yeah. when I am just starting to talk about it, I get angry. You know why? Because I feel that people are spitting on my face. This judicial coup is being managed dealt by three people. Levine... Rothman, Netanyahu, all of them are pure, Ashkenazi, elite, rich people. And now they're supposed to, re- to present, represent us, the Mizrahi Jews, who what? Like on, on what? Why? This, this guy, the richest, most filthiest, corrupt guy, who has millions and millions and millions of dollars. He has a few houses in Caesarea, in Tel Aviv, in Ga- in, not in, in, in Tel Aviv, sorry, Caesarea, in Jerusalem, and in other places. He's supposed to be the representative what what is called the second israel and then i see i hear people on television saying he's the leader of the israel shniya the second israel what kind of bullshit is that what kind of bullshit is that this is what makes me so angry.
0: so before we finish because i know we're we're almost done i mean the way i see it there are there are so many rifts and that's one big rift but we've got you know the Haredim, the ultra orthodox who are quite desperate to preserve their very entitled way of life that's very expensive for people like you and me. We've got the religious Zionists who are messianists, and they want to really, in the end, take over not just the judiciary, but all of West Bank, most of them.
1: Not all, yeah.
0: Most of them. There, Look, in every parting and in every generalization, there are exceptions. But I think that the religious Zionist movement is greater Israel movement at its core. Okay. Do you agree? Partially. Partially, yes. Okay. And then we've got kind of the rest of us. So there are so many divisions and so many rifts.
1: And you forgot one group. Tell me. The Netanyahu supporters.
0: Well, I thought they're, the, they're always the fourth off to the side.
1: And they're the main power right now. He's the yeah. main power. Let's be honest. This whole thing is about saving him from going to prison.
0: So, the, well, okay, there has to be more to it than that. We always talk about, you know, it's Likud, they're the largest party, they control the government. Two questions I would like to finish up on. Number one, is he really controlling this government? And number two, you know, to do this, this man had a great legacy. Like him, vote for him or not, great legacy. He'd done so much good for Israel. He's brilliant. He's given his life to this country. To to now, after all of that, destroying not just the country, but his legacy. Over a trial?
1: Her Excellency. Yes. If you had the chance of going to prison or not going to prison, what would you choose?
0: Well, I would definitely choose not to go to prison. Exactly. But, but if you threw in into that mix, destroy the state of Israel or go to prison, which is really...
1: Yeah, but he believes, he truly believes, that he's the big savior of Israel. He's the white savior of yeah. those Sephardic Mizrahi Jews. He's the white savior of those Okay, they they don't like Mizrahi. It's not a secret, you know. His wife is totally racist against Mizrahi. I'm not inventing here anything. It's their closest friend said that time after time after time, they treat them, they talk about them in a very racist way, and now this guy has the option to save his skin. His skin. So from where prison. do we
0: go from here? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to? Where are we going to be in a year from now when I come see you?
1: I'm optimistic, and you know it might sound very unique. Today in Israel. Because everyone else. But I think that you know. The biggest mistake that Netanyahu did. Was to. Let this genie out of the. Out of the. Bottle. out, Out of the bottle. And this genie is us. The more central. Left. Secular. Young people. Not like me young. Way way younger people. That just had enough. You know they served all their life in the miluim or in the the army they paid taxes and what they see is that the same people that are not sharing the same obligations meaning serving in the army or paying the taxes are the ones that are making for them the rules of future israel to come and this is the place where people are saying enough
0: but where do do we end up because we still how do we get the kharidim to participate in society and how, what do we do with all those religious Zionists living in the Shtachim?
1: No, I don't have a good answer for all of it, of course. Okay. But slowly, slowly, shwaya, shwaya, you say in Arabic. Right. You know. Yes, I learned that. First of all, I think should. that this government will fall at the end of the day because right now its existence is a threat for the state of Israel, for the future of the state of Israel. Do you think it will fall soon? I don't know if soon, but in a few months.
0: That's it.
1: I think that with Betzalel Smotrich and Itamar ben it's either that they will lead us into a terrible war that that will bring the end of this government or they will get out of the government and then that will be the end of the government
0: avyesharaf thank you so much for your time your insights and uh, keep churning out those great shows for us to watch
1: thank you very much thank you
0: pleasure Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and beyond podcast. It would be great if you would like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Check us out at stateoftelaviv.com on Substack, where you will have access to our full library of content for a limited time only. We are truly independent. We don't just say it, meaning that you will be exposed to views from across the political spectrum at stateoftelaviv.com. Me? I'm all over the place, but generally a solid centrist. State of Tel Aviv is supported by its listeners and readers. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber. Each member makes a huge difference. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv. Until next time, stay cool, stay safe, have a great weekend.